Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to be together, for a new year, for the gift of this Christmas season, and for all of the new things that you have in store for us today and in the coming year. We pray, Lord, that we would lay down this coming year, and especially this coming hour, as we study your word, just at your feet, Lord, and that we would allow ourselves to be open ready and willing to receive whatever you have in store for us in the ways that we need to be encouraged, ways that we are searching, ways that we need to be healed, ways that we are looking for answers. We pray, Lord, you would come and meet us in those places tonight. You would help us to know that you love us, that you are never seeking to judge us, but only to embrace us and welcome us as we are, even in the midst of our own mess. And so we pray, Lord, wherever we're coming from tonight, whatever's on our hearts and our minds, let us not be distracted, but help us to be even more present to your loving presence and allow your Holy Spirit to flow in and through us. We pray that we would come to understand the word more deeply and come to know you more intimately after this night together. And so we pray that you anoint and bless this time, bless all those uh, who are on their way still or could not be here tonight, and bless each one of us in the ways we most need it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. There are Bibles over here if you need them. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the Feast of the Epiphany. Feast of Epiphany. Um, so it usually is celebrated on January 6th, but in our diocese we uh, move it to the, most, uh, the closest Sunday. So that is this Sunday, January 8th. So we will uh, be reading Matthew chapter 12, or sorry, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, twice through, first time through, just to get a picture for what is being said. This is an incredibly familiar passage. You hear it every Christmas season, uh, and you've seen it depicted in thousands of uh, nativity scenes and things like that. So anytime we come across a very familiar passage, I ask you to delete any image of this you have in your mind, okay? Try and listen to this or hear it with fresh eyes. Uh, fresh ears and see what you notice. Okay, so pretend you've never heard this before. You have a blank canvas in front of you and just paint this in your mind as you hear it being proclaimed. Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising and have come to do him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written through the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, since from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and ascertained from them 
the time of the star's appearance. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and do him homage. After their audience with the king, they set out. And behold, the star that they had seen at its rising preceded them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. They were overjoyed at seeing the star, and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They prostrated themselves and did him homage. Then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, very familiar story of three wise men visiting the uh, newborn Jesus, or child Jesus. So the second time through, now that you have an image of this in your mind, I invite you to listen very closely just to the words, and see if a particular word or phrase strikes you or stands out to you for any reason. Doesn't have to have anything to do with this passage, but maybe just strikes a memory, a chord in you, resonates with something that you've been thinking or praying about, something going on in your own life. Hang on to that word or that detail that stands out to you, and just begin to reflect on it. Ask God, why is this standing out? What are you trying to say to me through this word or this detail or this phrase? Second and final time through Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising and have come to do him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written through the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, since from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and ascertained from them the time of the star's appearance. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and do him homage. After their audience with the king, they set out. And behold, the star that they had seen at its rising preceded them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. They were overjoyed at seeing the star, and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They prostrated themselves and did him homage. Then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've read this twice through, I invite you to reflect for a moment or two on the things that stood out to you. If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know however you can what stood out to you. But for those of us here, we're going to spend about 10 minutes in the tables that you're seated in. So if you're at a table of just one or two, feel free to combine uh, and just discuss what stood out to you or any questions that uh, arose in you at reading this. Any curiosities you have about the details or things like that. So what stood out to you and any questions? Take the next 10 minutes to do that and then we'll bring it back to the large group for discussion. 
All right. Love to hear what are some of the things that are standing out to you and any of the questions that you have about this passage. Yes, Noah. Um, are the three wise men uh, Gentiles? Uh, yes, yeah. So we know for sure that they're Gentiles. They're not Jewish. They come from a distant land in the East that was far beyond the scope of where Judaism had reached. Um, we don't know that there were three. Uh, it is customary to label them as three because they bring three gifts. And so around the sixth century, I think, is the earliest we have them depicted as three in an Italian painting, and that's when they're named. And the traditional names they have are, are Caspar or Gaspar, um, Melchior and Balthazar. And they're typically depicted as three people of different descents, different ages, um, different hair colors even, um, you know, so they kind of encompass all of humanity and kind of the, who they're representing in terms of all the cultures in the world, but likely from the East. The word magi, um, you know, sometimes we say we three kings, that comes from Old Testament imagery of kings visiting in certain prophecies, but the word magi actually is used in the New Testament to mean like magician or sorcerer, kind of like the people that Pharaoh consults. Um, you know, when Moses is, is there and performing these plagues, these miracles, and he has these kind of astrologer-like magicians who know the stars, know the natural order, know the natural world, and they're trying to replicate what Moses is doing. Um, some people think that they are uh, priests of the cult of Zoroaster. They're Zoroastrians, potentially, priests of the Zoroastrian religion. Um, Zoroastrianism is an early monotheistic religion that started in Iran around the 6th century BC, which is ironically the same time when the Jewish people were in exile in the same area, so you probably see where they got that idea from. Uh, but it has uh, some marked differences with Christianity in that it's very dualistic, claims to be monotheistic, but there's a, uh, a main, there's two main deities that are co-eternal. One is all good, one is all bad. Um, the good one, um, I'm going to butcher this, Ahura Mazda is the good one, and then uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember how I would remember this. Uh, Angramanyu is the is the evil one, um, who um, are their twin brothers, and they, they kind of embody the scope of good and evil. Um, so they claim to be monotheistic religion, but they've kind of adapted to some of the pagan uh, polytheistic things around them. So they're they're markedly different from Judaism. However, they did have this messianic expectation as well, which they probably got from the Jews, or it's, you know speculated they got from the Jews when they were in exile in that area. So that's kind of a little about who they were and how many they might be and why they were there. Yeah? Uh, what does it mean when it, when it says Herod summoned the wise men secretly? Like, what, is, what does it mean that he summoned them secretly? So Herod's a pretty shady dude. Um, Herod, um, he's the result of kind of an intermarried um, couple, which was very rare at the time and not seen as very good. And he's meant to be kind of the Jewish ruler of the area, but he's not a very good Jew because he's asking about this Old Testament prophecy, like, where's the Messiah coming from again? Like, which is something they all learned when they were in school. So he's not a very good Jew, and he's very paranoid and wants to retain power. In fact, he killed his wife and three of his sons, um, all because of this paranoid request of power. In fact, Caesar Augustus, who was the, the um, Roman emperor at the time, uh, one of the Roman emperors at the time of King Herod the Great, said that it was uh, safer to be one of Herod's pigs than it would be to be one of his sons. Like That's how awful he was. And in fact, when Herod was getting close to death, he imprisoned a group of elites 
in, uh, in the area and ordered them to be killed when he died so that there'd be greater mourning in the city for his death. Yeah, so that's the kind of dude that he was. So he's, uh, he's acquiring, the, he's asking for them to come secretly because he has nefarious plans. He wants to put this uh, potential threat to his throne to death, right? They say, where is the new king of the Jews? And the actual king of the Jews is standing there like, uh, excuse me, what? I did not get the memo. And this guy who's retained his kingship through murder obviously wants to continue doing that. So uh, it's very similar. There's huge similarities between Jesus and Moses in the story and the way that Matthew is pointing. Remember, Matthew is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience about Jesus who is Jewish. So he's putting all this Old Testament Jewish imagery and symbolism in this. So he's highlighting these things that happened so that the Jewish audience will see Jesus is coming in the line of Moses, but he's the one that Moses prophesied, one greater than me is coming, and prophesied that in Deuteronomy. So just like Moses uh, was, the result, was saved from the result of all of these young babies being thrown into the Nile because the Jewish people were becoming too numerous, King Herod orders the killing of all of the, of the children under two shortly after this, the massacre of the infants, um, which starts in, in verse 16. Um, Moses is fleeing from, from Pharaoh, just as Jesus is fleeing from Herod. They go to Egypt. Moses goes back to Egypt. You know, they consult, Pharaoh consult, Herod consults elders and scribes. Pharaoh consults these sorcerers. So there's a lot of similarities between these two figures. Matthew's really trying to point out here that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise of Moses. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with King Herod playing that kind of new role of the new Pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it, you know, Herod, such a bad guy that says here, you know, he, you know, he was upset when he heard about this. And, and, said, and everyone else in Jerusalem was upset. Yeah. Well, they just kind of playing along because they, they want to stay on Herod's good side. Yeah, they know when Herod's upset, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. So I don't think that they were, were troubled by the fact that, oh, the Messiah is coming. Everyone was expecting that. Everyone wanted that. They were troubled by the fact that King Herod was troubled. And when King, Cher when King Herod is troubled, that's trouble for everybody. People are going to die. Uh, so I think it was just everyone in the city was on edge probably because of that. Yeah. I'm just wondering about like the Jewish culture, just like just powers. It's like how come, I guess, like the, I guess the Jewish like, religion or church, like the, the leaders of the church or whatever you call it, back then, mm -hmm. how come they don't have, like, enough say or power, like, compared to the king, I guess? Because, like, uh, it seemed like they would, you know, kind of intercede if they thought this was, like, you know, actually like, the Messiah. Yeah, so there's kind of a, at this time, there's kind of a secular Jewish authority, that's King Herod, and that is very political. Their, their relationships are very political. If they've supported the emperor, if they've done good things for the emperor, for Rome, if they've partnered with them, gotten them good taxes or whatever, they get these positions of power, they get to rule over this area, they get these lovely palaces and things like that. And then within Judaism, you have the internal structure of the priesthood, which is different. Uh, and in there, you have the Sanhedrin, which is the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. And then you have the Sadducees, who are more of like an elite, um, more politically oriented sect of Judaism that are kind of more like King Herod, that they're just in it for the power. And that's usually the high priest was usually of the Sadducees, the people who were in power. So you do have this kind of tension between these groups. Um, the Pharisees very much want to continue to practice their law. They're very faithful to the law, even more so than they should be, very scrupulous about it. 
but they want to maintain the fact that Judaism needs to be practiced in a certain way. You need to be able to worship and sacrifice in the temple, have Sabbath, and things like that. The Sadducees, they don't really care about all that. They just want their positions of power. So, And all of this, this tension between them with this big brother of Rome oppressing them, taxing them. You know, uh, Rome is the only uh, authority that can condemn people to death at this time. Uh, the Jewish uh, councils have lost that ability because Rome wants to maintain order. Uh, and so there's this, this constant tension going on. So, yeah, some of them really want, and you have other sects of Judaism, like the Zealots, who they want to completely over, overthrow Rome, and like they're like these trained assassins, basically. And then you have those who completely wandered out away from it all because they're sick of it, and they're waiting for the Messiah out in the desert, the Essenes. So you have all these different groups who are responding to this cultural reality in a different way. And then beyond that, you have other people still who are anticipating you know, a Messiah as well, like these Magi. So everyone is kind of experiencing this cultural moment, you could say, at this time 2,000 years ago in a different way and anticipating the Messiah, but anticipating and hoping for that for different reasons. Some probably for political gain, some to make an alliance, some to pay tribute and homage so they're not punished, some because they really understand the Jewish law and that God is going to redeem his people. It's a whole myriad of expectations uh, when it comes to this. Yeah? I used to know this, but I forgot. Maybe okay. you can help me. There's a, there's a reason for gold, frankincense, and work. Yes. So the three gifts here represent um, the three kind of uh, roles of Jesus. And we, we have these roles by virtue of our baptism as well, and that Jesus is going to be a priest, a prophet, and a king. And so when we're baptized, we're baptized into the priesthood of Jesus Christ, into his prophetic role, and into his royal family. And so we have those same roles in our own baptismal calling. And so the gold represents his royalty, that he is divine, he's wealthy, um, he has this gift fit for kings. Uh, frankincense represents his priestly role. Frankincense is used in, uh, obviously, in the temple for sacrifices and all these different things. It's ground up as well and used in different things. And then myrrh is his prophetic role. And myrrh is a substance that's used both for, it's mixed with the oil for the anointing of the high priest. And it's also uh, what bodies are embalmed with when they die. And myrrh is a very sticky substance, so it kind of adheres the um, the the we call it bandages to the body um, to ensure that it is like preserved and buried properly according to the Hebrew rituals. Um, so it's kind of symbolizes death, but it also has that temple sacrificial uh, representation. And so it's kind of a representation of the fact that Jesus is a prophet, the greatest prophet in line with all of the prophets of the Old Testament coming to speak prophetic, prophetically, but also foreshadowing the fact that he will die in a very similar way because all the prophets were persecuted, killed in a variety of different ways because they spoke things that were hard to hear. So, what yeah. do you think Joseph, Joseph and Mary did with those, those gifts? They weren't too practical. Yeah, they weren't, yeah. Yeah, isn't there that meme that's like if the three wise men were women, they would have brought like diapers, baby wipes, and, you know, uh, formula or something like that, you know, something practical. Um, I think uh, people speculate that um, the frankincense and myrrh were probably used as an offering for the temple um, or used to be sold, especially when they were in Egypt trying to survive. Um, that would have afforded them a place to live. Uh, they, were, they wouldn't be kind of sold into slavery. They would have been potentially seen as like, you know, somewhat wealthy for having these things. And they would have kind of been able to make a living or like keep themselves afloat until they got to go back. Um, but I, you know, I don't know, I've never thought about this before and I've never heard it seen anywhere, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some church somewhere that claims to have some piece 
of original frankincense, myrrh, or gold. Whether or not it's authentic, who knows? You know, they've said there's enough pieces out there of the true cross of Jesus to build Noah's Ark. So um, who knows if they're legitimate or not? But, um, you know, I've never heard of that, of anywhere having that, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that's the case. Yeah. Yes? They didn't have factories our wives. That's true. Yeah, they did. Whatever the equivalent was. <laughs> Jared? Uh, is there anything that they say further on in the Bible about the Magi's and what happens to them? No, I, they're never mentioned again. I mean, they're mentioned shortly after this when they... Uh, well, no, this is the last we hear of them when they leave. Yeah, we read the whole story. Yeah, so we never hear anything else from them. And, and again, they're not named. That didn't happen until 600 years later. Um, and so we, we don't know. It could have been a whole cohort of them. Could have been two. You know, Magi is plural. And so it's more than one. Um, obviously commonly depicted and named as three because of the three gifts. But it could have been a whole horde, like 20, 30 wise men coming. And imagine just like... <laughs> I just, I'm trying to picture this, like Mary just gave birth in the stable. Now they're in a house, you know, they've stuck around in Bethlehem for a while, at least until they could perform the circumcision after the eighth day, present him in the temple and then wait for him to heal. And then before they get, uh, you know, gone off to Egypt. But um, some speculate Jesus could have been an old, as old as one or two years old at this point when they come and visit him. So this isn't when the shepherds are there in the nativity scene. They're in a house. A house is mentioned here. That's not how it was before. So they've been there for a while. They've settled down. But imagine, like, you've gone through this whole ordeal, you know, through the whole census. There was nowhere to check in. You finally found a house. You're settled down. There's a knock on the door, and there's, like, 30 Eastern Zoroastrian priests at your door. Like, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. You're just like, I was just about to take a nap. Like, you know, like, it just would have been probably, I mean, all of these things that Mary experienced, that Joseph experienced, very unsettling in a very profound and supernatural way, you know. So it's just interesting to think about. Yeah. But it mentions the star. Yes. So then, wasn't the star in the so I believe the shepherds come because they the angels appear to them and they tell them that um, the child has been born. Um, we don't have any indication that this is the only mention of the star is in this passage. It's not mentioned in Luke. Um, and the star actually brings similarities to another story from the Old Testament, which is the story of Balaam. And Balak, if you know this story, it's a little lesser known story. It's from the book of Numbers, chapter 22 to 24. And Balak uh, was the king of Moab, which was another uh, you know, tribe in the area when uh, the Jewish people, under the leadership of Moses, were trying to move up toward the promised land. And they were winning these battles as they were getting closer and closer to the promised land. And so Balak, this king, is like, okay, I need to go find uh, a prophet or some kind of soothsayer to curse the Jewish people. And so he finds Balaam. And he asks Balaam to come and curse these Jewish people. And what he says is, I'm, I'm only going to say what, the, what God tells me to say. Okay, I'm not going to say what you, and he does this three or four times, where Balak asks him to curse the Jewish people. He goes and he prays to the Lord, and God tells him to do the opposite, to bless them, and to tell Balak, like, these people are chosen by God. The very last time this happens uh, is in Numbers, let's see if I have it marked here, Numbers 24, um, and part of that oracle, in starting at verse 17, this is what Balaam says. I see him, though not now. I observe him, though not near. A star shall advance from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel that will crush the brows of Moab and the skull of all the Sethites. Edom will be dispossessed, and no survivor is left in Seir. Israel will act 
boldly and Jacob will rule his foes. So we have this kind of old, very Old Testament prophecy of a star and someone coming to redeem under the leadership of a very wicked king, Balak. And then we have this wicked king, Herod. We have a star coming, we have God's intervention, and we have a pagan soothsayer, Balaam, versus these pagan magi coming. So there's obviously, Matthew's trying to draw this distinction here, that these are things that have been prophesied from the very oldest of times. And this is uh, something that is pointing back to that. Now, some people have tried to explain the star as some kind of supernatural, or some natural event that happened. Uh, so there's been two things proposed, uh, and one of them is, is Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet passed over um, in, in a visible way uh, in that area about 11 BC. And, uh, and then Jupiter and Saturn, which are usually both very visible in the night sky, when they appear very close to each other, usually happens near the moon when it happens, at least in our hemisphere, part of the world. Uh, that itself has been nicknamed the Star of Bethlehem because people for a long time thought that's what happened. And those two planets aligned uh, in such a way near that area in about 7 BC. However, um, Herod, he reigned from about 37 to 4 BC. And uh, Jesus, Jesus was probably not born right at well, there's no year zero. It goes from 1 BC to 1 AD. But it's probably not born right there in the middle because of the ways calendars have been adjusted throughout history. Okay, But he was, give or take a few years, you know, somewhere between 4 and 2 BC, once all the historical accuracy kind of happened hundreds of years later, and we're like, know exactly when this happened. Um, so probably near the time of Herod's death, but no natural explanation that can, that can focus on it. So this is something very likely supernatural. And it's explained that way. The star leads them and stops. Stars don't behave that way, right? Something very supernatural. And in fact, that's what an epiphany is. It's a sudden supernatural realization or manifestation. And the Sunday is a piece of not an epiphany, but the epiphany. This is the supernatural manifestation of God that we're celebrating. And all of the ways that people, symbols, different ways nature and supernatural events pointed to the fact that Everything that we have been waiting for in the pages of Scripture, the Jewish people were waiting for for thousands of years in the Old Testament, is coming to fruition in the child Jesus. And seeing a foreshadowing of the fact that even at this very earliest of stages, the king of the Jews, Herod, a Jewish person, rejecting the child Jesus, and those Gentiles accepting him, something that is a huge theme throughout the Gospels, and that foreshadows the expansion of the chosen promises of God to all people, and not just to the Jewish people. And so all of that uh, is at play here when we see those star similarities between that Old Testament story of Balaam and Balak and Jesus and all that Matthew is trying to communicate. This is who Jesus is. He's the promised Messiah in line with all these different prophecies, all these stories that we remember that we learned when we were kids, all pointing to this moment. So when you were to read this, if you were a Jewish person reading Matthew's you know, first draft around 50 or 60 AD, 65 AD, you would have been unequivocally convinced, like, this is the person we've been waiting for. Other questions? Things that stood out? Yeah? Is it important for, I don't know, that the Magi come from the East? Where is the East? Where do they come from? Is that something you mean? Um, I mean, the East, I mean, it's, it's the region of the Gentiles. East is where Babylon is. Um, where Persia is. Um, that's why they think they're Zoroastrian, because of when Zoroastrianism started was around the time that per the Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire, all in that region. Um, but then after that, the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great took over, and then Rome took over that. But there were still these footholds of 
faith and culture in all these different places. So again, mainly is, is uh, signifying those that are Gentiles, because the Jewish area is basically from a little bit north of the Sea of Galilee down to kind of the southern border of Judah, and it's all marked off by the River Jordan. And there's a little bit over the, the actual area of King Herod, um, King Herod, the, the different King Herod, but the King Herod that's at the time of uh, John the Baptist and Jesus when they're older, his region is just to the east of the Jordan, but it doesn't extend very far. So it's a very, very small area. So to the east off always means outsiders. Yeah. Yes. Maybe the lesson here is maybe God is giving us signs to lead us to Christ. We, we have to recognize it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, God is sending us stars all the time. That's why it's important to remember and celebrate this piece of the Feast of the Epiphany every year, uh, because we're reminded of the ways that, and the ways that maybe we may be missing, that God is trying to point out to us. Jesus is seeking to be born into your life today. Now, what are you bringing to offer him? And think about this. Think about these people who are not of the Jewish faith. They're way off in the East, practicing a totally different religion, and they are anxiously anticipating any sign from the heavens of when these promises and these hopes are going to come to fruition. And they see a star, and they pack up, and they leave. And yet all of the people in Israel who've heard these promises their entire life, they're just sitting around like, oh, I wonder what that is. You know, okay, let's go back in. Let's watch a movie or something. You know, obviously not. But, you know, like... There, there's this stark contrast. And I think this is something to really draw out of this for our own personal reflection as we're hearing this proclaimed on Sunday as we're praying through this gospel and the other readings this week to really think about like, what is the Lord asking you to do, especially on the cusp of a new year? We always make these resolutions, right? We always have these goals, these things, and some people put them off, but in the back of your mind, you really have these things that, you know, like, yes, I'd like to be more X, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is. And yet how many of those are really seen through the lens of how is this going to glorify God and build the kingdom? Like if you achieved all of your resolutions, like unequivocally, perfectly, you got everything that you resolved, would anyone's life change but yours? Usually it's a very self-focused kind of thing. We use this time of year to really look at what, what's going on around me, what's going on in my life, what do I want to do for myself? And yet these people, they were so focused on everything outside of them because they knew there was something great. And when the sign came, when the opportunity came, they dropped everything and followed the prompting of the Lord to go. You know, how is the Lord calling you to do that at this moment in your life? Because you're not too old, too young. Like, God's not done with you. If you're still breathing, God doesn't waste time. God's not just like, oh, man, I totally forgot to kill that person and bring them to heaven. Like, it's been way too long. Like, no, he has exactly, I know it's a bad turn of phrase. God's not actively like, killing people. But you know what I mean? Like, you know, he's not just finally calling us home, like, and forgetting to do that. Like, if you're still here, he has an intention and a purpose for your life. And that purpose is not just for you and your personal life to get better. It's through service to others, through going and dropping everything and following that mission of the Lord. Not saying we should all become missionaries, but maybe that happens right here in your own life. Dropping the things you're attached to, following what the Lord is asking of you. And in doing so, in service to others... And being faithful to God, then our lives become abundantly blessed. Think of that in contrast to how we've begun to maybe approach this new year and how our culture approaches a new year. And how can that shift? Maybe you've already made some resolutions. 
And I think in reading something like this, I think it would be great to go home and cross some of those off the list and write some new ones and asking particular intentional questions like, how is God calling me to follow him more faithfully, to serve others more sacrificially, to use the gifts he's given me for the betterment of my community, my parish, my friends and family? Maybe instead of a resolution list, I write a list of names. And those names are people who need to know the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They're people in my life who I can directly affect, who I can love in radical ways, who I can serve, who I can help. What if that was the list? That's the type of radical get up and leave mentality that the Magi can teach us. And it's the Magi, it's not the Jewish people, it's the unexpected people and in the unexpected ways that God works powerfully. The thing that stood out to me when we were reading this is this line in the prophecy uh, in verse 6. It's a prophecy from the prophet Micah, uh, chapter 5. But it's this phrase, uh, by no means least. By no means least. That stood out to me. I just felt, as I was reading that the second time through, I really felt God say to me, like, even when you think you are least, when you think you are small and insignificant and not making a difference, or not the person that would be picked, or not the person that gets the glory, or not the person that God's going to work through, God always tends to work through those people. God doesn't choose King Herod. He chooses a baby from a carpenter who lives in a backwater town of 200 people that no one's ever heard of. God didn't choose Pharaoh. He chose Moses, who grew up to be a stuttering murderer. God didn't choose the oldest of David's brothers. He chose the youngest run to his out-tending sheep. God didn't choose a boat builder to save people from the flood. He chose a 600-year-old person named Noah who had never seen a boat probably in his life because he was a farmer. That's why God has to tell him how to build one. He chooses the least expected, the least likely, and he does these profound things to them. So if you've ever looked in the mirror and felt like, oh man, I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be holy enough. Like, I don't know what God wants for me. Or maybe that's for someone who's really holy. Maybe that's for Matt who stands at the mic, you know, and my life's a mess too. So welcome to this. So, but, but all of us, like being able to acknowledge that God can do something in this mess. You know, we have all this time to think about the birth of Jesus. And I've been in the delivery room both times my wife has given birth, and it is messy. It is not easy. Okay? Anyone who's given birth or been witness to that knows that. And yet, in the midst of the mess, God does these supernatural things. He manifests in powerful ways. In the midst of the mess of your own life, in the ways you feel least of, you feel weak, you feel not good enough, you feel like you're too attached to sin, or God would never choose you, or you're not, never going to be a saint, whatever it is, the lies that the devil tells us. This gospel is a really great opportunity for you and I to reflect and ask, how am I being called where I'm at, in my mess, to go, to drop the attachments I have, to drop the focus on myself, and to just follow the Lord where he's leading faithfully, this year, this day, this week, whatever it is. That is what will radically change lives. Your life and the lives of those around you. Step off my soapbox. Any uh, any other questions, comments about this passage? A lot of good stuff. Yes, David. I was just, uh, I know you were talking about the stars and how like, the big magi is like, took that as a sign, but I was just wondering, like, on verse 12, they're talking about how they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they believe that too. They're just so faithful that they're like, oh, I'm going to believe this dream too. Yeah. I was just confused. Like, what kind of dream could make you believe that? Well, what's interesting is that speaking through dreams 
is something that God does through prophets and chosen people in the Old Testament, right? He does it through Joseph, the patriarch, when he's in Egypt and he becomes a dream interpreter with Pharaoh and he's able to bring the whole Hebrew people, his family, the whole family of Abraham to Egypt and save them from a drought. That's how they end up there in the time of Moses. And now we have a new Joseph, the father of Jesus, who's already been spoken to several times in dreams. Remember, it was one of our previous readings that the angel appears to him and said, your betrothed, Mary, is with child by the Holy Spirit. That happens from an angel speaking to him in a dream. And now, these people who are far off from the East, not even part of the Jewish family, are being given this same kind of honor, elevated to this place of the patriarchs and the prophets, these people that God speaks to. That's significant. That, again, shows that it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, how faithful you are, how totally messed up your life may be. You can, at that moment, every day, make that decision, I'm going to follow the Lord right in this moment. And all of a sudden, this is elevated relationship. It's the same thing in, in the, it was in the second reading this past Sunday, Galatians chapter four, where it says, uh, we are no longer slaves, but sons through God and also heirs. That we get elevated to this place of belonging to the family of God. That it's not this servant-based relationship that we serve God because he's so big and powerful and he told us to. No, he came to take on all of that debt. That was what slavery was, was like indentured servitude. He claimed to take on that debt so that we can stand in his place and become children, become sons and daughters of God. That, I think, is another profound uh, fruit and reward of the Magi, for being faithful and just being willing to say yes. You know, no one, virtually no one in Western society would respond this way. You saw something in the sky and you felt like a little twin, so like, I should go figure that out. Like, oh, but I'm busy and I gotta get to work and I gotta do this and that and I procrastinate on too many things. You know, we have our to-do list, our schedule, and very it would take a whole cataclysmic event for us to disrupt that. And part of that is cultural, obviously. Like they didn't have iPhones then, you know, nobody would be looking up, you know. That's probably why there's probably stars appearing all the time telling us to go find Jesus, and we're just like looking down, you know. But at the same time, like they had less attachments. There's plenty of things that had to be attached to. Worldly goods, riches, you know, all these different pagan, uh, you know, lifestyles. Very, the things that people found very attractive that they preach against all throughout the, the New Testament when the church is being formed. And so they didn't lack in the same tendency toward turning away from God, distractions from God. But I think there was more of just an overall cultural openness to knowing that God is, is trying to encounter us, that God is speaking to us, noticing God in the little things, noticing that God is working in even the most seemingly insignificant ways and being willing to respond. And I think if we're honest, for most of us, it would take like flashing billboard appearing to us like, I am God and I'm speaking to you right now, Matthew Zemanek, go and do this. And I'd probably have to drive by it a couple times be like, Did, you sure it wasn't Matthew Zerbanek? Like, let me make sure it was spelled right. You know, like, it would have to be so obvious, you know, because we, we just, we don't expect that. I think, I, I've had so many conversations before, like, why don't we see the stuff happening, you know, in the Bible today? It's because we don't act like the people in the Bible did. We don't stop and notice, we don't stop and let go of the attachments that we have to the world, to our own selfish ideas of what life is supposed to look like. If we had that sensitivity and that openness that they had then, then yeah, those miracles would be just as abundant. And they still happen, but we don't hear about them because we're paying attention to other things. We don't experience them because we don't have the openness that they did. So it's an invitation for us to be looking for the stars, to be... Uh, aware of how God is trying to speak to us in dreams and visions through our brothers and sisters, through scripture, and respond, you know? And not just blindly, you know, like, um, oh, I, I was reading 
a book and I felt like a, a spiritual moment. I read the word north. And so I just, I, I think I have to go do missionary work in the North Pole. Like, no, like, you know, talk to people who are sound and who know how to help you discern, but still like have that, like that's a good level of like receptivity and openness to have. Like, I would love if more people came to me and were like, I was just reading this line of book and I felt like God was telling me to go like serve the church in Africa. Okay, great. That's a good desire and openness. Now let's take a step back and discern, is that actually what God is asking me? But if we have that, like, no one's coming and asking, you know, no one's, no one's interpreting it that open, openly. Is that what God is asking me, right? So that, I think, is the invitation for us, having that deeper willingness and openness to the movement of God in our life, and being less distracted by the things that pull us away from that. Other questions, thoughts? Yeah, Chris. How, how, does, how does one, like, get into that yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever had to clean out like a really, really, really full room or like a closet. The only way to do it is take everything out. Right? Take everything out, organize it, put what you need back in. And that's life. Life is just this full stuffed closet. We don't have time to sit and organize everything. We just shove another thing behind the door. Like, okay, I got to get this done. We shove it behind the door. Yeah. And it's just busting at the seams, right? And that's why there's a huge uh, tradition and practice of fasting and asceticism in the church because it's about having less than, saying no to things, fasting from food, fasting from practices, fasting from things on your calendar, giving yourself time to rest, detaching from earthly things, putting your phone down, like all of that can help you then have the time to reorganize your life and your spiritual thoughts, your prayer life, to really then be focused and be able to concentrate. You know, that's why they say when you're working and you can't get anything done, organize your desk because just having a clean space makes you more productive. It's the same thing is true in your spiritual life. If your prayer's not going well, if you can't discern, organize your spiritual self. My wife's smiling at me because I'm like a neurotic about organization. Like it's like, it's bad. Um, like Marie Kondo has nothing on me. Like let me tell you. So uh, if I'm going to be the patron saint of anything, I hope it's organization. So, uh, but anyways, <laughs> my mind is going so many places now, but um, I got excited about organization. Um, that I think that I think is the first thing. You know, is not not so much about asking what what do I need to say yes to. It's about what do we need to say, start saying no to, so I'm more attentive to God and I have more time for silence, more time with Him, and less distraction and noise in my life. And then the rest kind of becomes clear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the same thing when you want to you want to start developing a relationship with a person. You have to make the time for them to organize your life around them. You know, if you want to end up in you know a long term relationship or eventual marriage or in your vocation like that, it involves a restructuring and reordering of your life. You know, and that's the same thing is true with God. Absolutely. Other thoughts, questions, things that stood out? Yeah. What was that? Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think we're not specific enough with God. We're not, like in our prayer. Like I was telling someone about this the other day. Like Mother Teresa, when she would pray, she would say, Jesus, I need $5,331.14 for this. And she would pray for that specifically. And sure enough, two weeks later, a check for exactly that amount would just show up. But we just ask, like, God, can you just help? Can you just fix this? 
Well, God has a myriad of different ways he can fix it. If you want to be, if you want something miraculous to happen in your life, ask for a specific real miracle. And I'm not saying just because you're specific, God's going to do it exactly the way that you want. But I don't think we're bold and audacious enough with God and the things we ask him for. We just kind of make it general, and it shows that we don't really trust that he can do it. Right? We make it safe so that if if it doesn't if it doesn't pan out the way that we expected, we're not as like, you know, we don't we're not as invested. And that's not having faith in someone. That's not trusting them. You know? That's like the same, like, if I just, like, woke up every day with my wife and I was like, hey, honey, can you just, like, not cheat on me today? That'd be, like, so great. You know? But instead of just being like, no, I specifically, like, desire to be loved in this way. Or this is how we can be supportive to one another today. Imagine the differences between those two relationships, right? And how much stronger and how much more intentionally we could show up for one another because we're being specific. That's why they always say the number one problem in marriages is communication. We don't actually say what we want, what we need, what we're thinking. And if we do that with God, even though he knows, he's a perfect gentleman, he's not going to go beyond the doors that we've opened. If he comes across a closed door, we haven't been specific enough, we haven't invited him in, he's not going to bust it down. So I think we need to, maybe this is an opportunity, a year, a moment in our life for us to be really specific about what we want God to do in our life. We need God to do in our life and the lives of others. But we can't, again, look at that through a selfish lens and say, okay, this is how I want my life to be better in 2023. No, this is how we want the world to be saved for the kingdom of God. And this is the role that I'm feeling called to play in it. And if I don't know that role, Lord, reveal it to me. Reveal it to me in a bold, obvious, unequivocal way. I was at the gym. This is a really stupid example of this. But I was at the gym today, and the, uh, the person running the class she was asking everyone what their word of the year was. And I was like, oh man, I forgot to do that. And I was like, I was thinking about this one word. And as I thought it, she said that word twice in one sentence. Like that me, and I was like, fine, Jesus, thank you. Like I get it, you know? It was like so obvious. Like it just like hit me like right there. I was like, okay, I got it. Yes, I'm paying attention, you know? And I, I saw myself as like, he is the parent and I am one of my children. Like I have to tell them something 13 times before they'll even like look at me. Be like, oh, you exist, you know? And then they'll listen, you know? But it was so obvious to me. Because in that moment, I just, I had, you know, a specific thought. And I was like, hmm, I, I was really thinking about this, Lord. Like, I wonder if this is what you want. And it was like, boom, right there. But so often my prayer is just too general, not specific enough. Miracles don't happen in my life because I'm not asking for them. Miracles will happen in your life this year if you ask for them. And if you have the faith to back them up. That, I think, is something that we can take from this. The feast of the epiphany, the supernatural manifestation of God on earth in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God incarnate, coming to earth to tell us that he wants to be reconciled to us, that he loves us, and that he will do anything. He will even die so that he will not have to spend eternity without us. That's a very specific, intentional thing to do. And then he offers that to us as an invitation to say, this is the relationship I offer to you. How do you respond? Is our prayer as specific is our prayer as expectant? Is our prayer as hope-filled and miraculous as that gesture God has made to us? That's the invitation of the epiphany. To be able to drop everything and leave. To offer our gifts to God, whatever we have. And say, God, this is yours. Simply to do him homage. Simply to do him praise and to see what blessings and abundance come from it. That, that will radically change your year, your life, the entire world. If even one more person did that, it would be incredible. That, I think, is our reflection on this, at least for me, in the coming week. Let's pray. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this study and this time together in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would have the faith of the Magi, that we would be willing to look constantly for your presence, your voice, your signs in our life, and to be willing to let go of attachment, to empty ourselves of the things that do not fulfill us so that we can more easily say yes and respond to the things you're asking us to do. Help us not to look inward in the ways that we can better ourselves, but to look outward in the ways that you are using us as conduits and instruments of your love in the world so that blessing can be bountiful in our life and the lives of others. Lord, help this not be a year of personal adjustment and personal growth, but a year of spiritual transformation and abundance. And help us to recognize the difference between those two things in our life, to not be selfish in our goals, but to always ask how you are calling us to love, how you are working in our life, where you are calling us to respond. And so we pray, Lord, as we reflect on this passage and we hear it proclaimed again this Sunday for the Feast of the Epiphany, that we would recognize the gift that is being given to us of you being born into our life each day and how we are presenting our own gifts, what you are calling us to do, to say yes to, how you are calling us to respond so that more and more people in this world will know your love and that we will know it more deeply too. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.